0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Sunday, March the 13th, and for the 13th, the headlines today, I guess, are appropriately bleak, uh, the Russians are threatening now to attack Western weapon shipments to Ukraine, in other words, and this is something we've talked about in some detail on the show. There remains a very significant threat that this war might be internationalized. Meanwhile, the Russians don't seem to be doing very well on a military front. The FT suggests that um that so far the military uh, offensive in in Ukraine has been a serious uh, failure. Uh, On the American side, uh, the FT reports that while Biden has frozen out Putin, uh, Biden is warming, that's their word, to other autocrats, including those from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Of course, that's all bound up um, in the issue of oil and energy. The historical analogies are, of course, Uh, easy to come to, very convenient. Um, Two years ago, I had my guest today, William Galston, very distinguished Brookings, analyst and much-published writer on politics, uh, on the show, asking him if our current moment, that was back in April 2020, was another 1933. I think in a peculiar way, we've got past 1933 now, although we still might be in the 1930s. A couple of weeks ago, I also had the British political economist Helen Thompson on the show, and we had an interesting conversation about whether Putin's behavior is returning the world to what she calls the hard times of the 1970s. Uh, the hard times, of course, above all else being the, those inflationary times. Uh, William Galston had an interesting uh, Brookings piece uh, a month ago, Um entitled Why Inflation is President Biden's Biggest Political Problem. Very perceptive piece from Bill, uh, as always, and uh, he argues, most Americans are too young to remember the inflationary surge of the 1970s. Uh, Bill, you, like I, are not too young to remember the 1970s. Um, Last time we talked about the world returning to the 1930s. Uh, in March 2022, are we returning to the 70s, or is it a peculiar synthesis of the 30s and the 70s?
1: Well, I am beginning to detect the resonances of the of the 1970s. Uh, the peculiar combination or perhaps not so peculiar combination of high and rising inflation uh and widespread public discontent uh which is certainly expressing itself in survey research attitudes towards president biden etc uh as for the 1930s uh perhaps i should advance the calendar by five or six years And begin talking about 1938 uh, and uh, raising questions as to whether our reaction to events in in Ukraine uh, is making things better uh, or preparing ourselves for even worse catastrophes in the coming months and years.
0: Uh, Bill, you've written extensively on the state of democracy um, in the United States and around the world. Your last major book, Anti-Pluralism, The Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy, was was most prescient. Uh, Four years after writing that book, how pessimistic are you about the future of Western democracy, particularly in America?
1: Well, uh, I would say that uh, Vladimir Putin has done the West a very strange kind of backhanded favor uh, because uh, in one stroke, uh, he has helped to restore the unity of the West, uh, the belief that we actually stand for something that is worth standing for while knocking the legs out from populists both in the united states uh and in europe i wrote it i wrote a wall street journal piece just a few days ago cataloging yeah, group. And
0: that that's um that's actually uh what i read last week which is why i invited you onto the show P- putin's group is walk back their praise this was your your weekly wall street journal piece
1: yes and uh uh, so I, I I do think that the situation is now is now quite different. Uh, populism, as I define it, remains a threat uh, to liberal democracy, and uh, I do not underestimate the danger that Donald Trump will be restored to the Oval Office in the 2024 election. Uh, a fear that has animated much of my analysis of domestic politics in recent months.
0: I want to do, um, after the break, I want to talk about your critique of the Democratic Party, but I'm interested in talking a little bit more about this uh, this issue of Putin's groupies, uh, particularly um, in the American Republican Party. It's easy for centrists and progressives to think that the Bannons have overplayed their hand, But is it possible that average, ordinary, mainstream American sentiment might actually be vaguely sympathetic to Putin?
1: Uh, It's possible to think that until you encounter the facts. I've been really surprised at the near unanimity of American public opinion uh, with regard to Putin and the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the willingness of Americans, eight in 10 Americans are in in favor of various forms of assistance to Ukraine. The last time I checked, uh, approval of Mr. Putin in the United States stood at 6%. Disapproval stands at 90%. Uh, Mr. Putin has transformed himself into the archetype of a villain uh, in the court of American public opinion. Uh, There has just been a moral revulsion across the board. Uh, at the sight of what he's doing to a, pe- to a people who did nothing to invite his aggression. I've rarely seen anything like this.
0: Bill, in your piece, um, I'm quoting you, you say, in a speech to GOP donors in New Orleans last Friday, uh, Mike Pence declared bluntly, there's no room in this party for apologists for Putin. Um but then you say if the Republican Party again makes Donald Trump its presidential nominee in 2024, Mike Pence will be proved wrong. Do you think that Trump knows that and will carefully navigate away from his love of Putin or his apparent love of Putin?
1: <laughs> uh, careful navigation is not Mr. Trump's strong suit, as you may have noticed. Well, um, yeah. and he, when he is challenged he tends to double down because to retreat is to acknowledge error. And his psychological constitution makes him virtually incapable of doing that. Uh, It is is possible that he is listening to people around him who are counseling him simply to keep his mouth shut in these circumstances. If I were Donald Trump, that's certainly what I would do right now, but of course, uh i can't even imagine what goes on inside inside his head uh and he is now of course busy claiming that he's such a feared tough guy that if he were still in the white house uh mr putin would never have dared to do this Uh, and parsing that sentiment would take me all day all day suffice it to say that it's ludicrous on its face
0: Bill, I'm sure you're familiar with this uh, really interesting thought piece in the New York Times a couple of months ago by Jonathan Rauch, who's a colleague of yours at Brookings, and Pete Wehner, both conservatives, but both, well, particularly Wayner, but suggesting that people who believe and love American democracy should be more worried about the Republican Party than the Democrats. Do you agree with with Rauch and Wayner on that? Is, are, are, are the Republicans more of a danger to American democracy are they more anti-pluralist than the Democrats?
1: well, the the main threat to American democracy is the refusal to accept the outcome of legitimate elections. I mean, this is a this is a core operating value of democracy. Uh, losers accept their loss. And if you can't do that, uh, and if you act on it, uh, then you are per se uh, an enemy of democracy. Donald Trump has legitimated rejection of legitimate presidential elections and has moved that into the mainstream of one of the two major political parties in the United States. If that isn't a threat to democracy, I don't know what is, and every other kind of threat pales by comparison, in my opinion. So yes, I am not a conservative, uh, and I certainly agree with my colleague John Roush and my friend Pete Wehner. Uh, Pete is definitely a conservative, but a conservative with a conscience and a soul, a religious man, and John Roush, who is hard to categorize. Uh, is an honest man, honest to his core and fearless. Uh, and they are simply, in my judgment, speaking the truth.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Jonathan Rauch would, uh, I think he would uh, be amused and uh, actually would appreciate the fact that you call him hard to categorize. He's one of those people who's in that particular camp. How much of a bloodbath do you expect the 2024 president presidential election to be on the Republican side? Will there be a very clear debate between a Liz Cheney and a Donald Trump or will everything become muddled?
1: Uh, I have a hard enough time, as, as you know, Andrew, uh, understanding my own party, let alone the Republican Party, which seems to me to have gone a little crazy in recent years. I won't venture to predict. All I can say is I hope that someone shows up uh, to mount a principal challenge to Donald Trump, whatever the prospects of success may be. Uh, and uh, I would not expect Liz Cheney uh, to beat Donald Trump uh, for the Republican nomination. <clears throat> I would not accept I would not expect the governor of my state, a moderate Republican the state of Maryland, a moderate Republican who's clearly thinking about doing so to defeat him in a one on one contest. Uh, The only chance for a non Trump Republican to win is if there are other Trumpy Republicans in the fight for the nomination alongside Mr. Trump and some of Mr. Trump's supporters decide that someone, for example, like the governor of Florida, Mr. DeSantis, who appears to have, you know, Mr. Trump's views without all of his peculiarities of character, uh, might split that vote, opening the door for a plurality victory by a non-Trump Republican. But that is, in my judgment, a really long shot.
0: I'm speaking with William Galston, um, long-time analyst of American politics. He talked about Uh, the Republicans not being his party. His party, of course, is the Democrats. And he is the author, actually, he's really the co-author of a really interesting new uh, Brookings report called The New Politics of Evasion, which is in some ways, I think, quite critical of the Democrats, or at least their political and uh, electoral strategy in the 2020s. I'm going to take a short break. uh, And then, uh, William, I want to come back and I want to talk about this new politics of evasion your critique of the democrats and how indeed they're going to win in 2024. So we'll be back in about 20 uh, in about 60 seconds with William Golston, the author of The New Politics of Evasion. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my Lit Hub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same. Um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lithub is. And on their Lithub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lithub YouTube page. So, Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with William Golston, the author of The New Politics of uh, Evasion. Uh, he is talking to me from Bethesda, Maryland, I think, where. His internet access is a little spotty, but he's back. Uh, Bill, first half of the show, we talked about the challenges and problems with the American Republican Party. You're a, a Democrat, and um, but quite a critical one. You have a new piece out from Brookings called uh, The New Politics of Evasion, how ignoring swing voters could reopen the door for Donald Trump and threaten American democracy. It came out last month. You wrote it with Elaine Kamar. What are you arguing? What's your warning to um, to Democrats in in March 2022 in terms of their reelectability?
1: Well, A- Andrew, first in in the interests of strict accuracy, you know, as the page on the screen shows, this piece was actually published by the Progressive Policy. Institute, not Brookings, Uh, and my co-author and I, my co-author and I chose to do that in part for historical reasons, because we published a piece called "The Politics of Evasion" with the Progressive Policy Institute 33 years ago, a notorious piece that helped to lay the foundation for the Clinton presidential candidacy and Bill Clinton's presidency. And we both served in Bill Clinton's White House with him uh and in addition this this piece is a frankly partisan piece written by democrats for democrats and so we thought that it would be inappropriate to publish such a piece through a nonpartisan research center
0: Phil, would, so, you, would it be fair to describe the piece as a, aggressively centrist by two uh former clinton people uh
1: that would be a piece of an accurate description Uh, But the other piece of it is that uh, it is a piece by two Americans who happen to be Democrats, but along with many other Americans, some of whom are not Democrats, are desperately concerned about the 2024 presidential election and the consequences for everything we care about of Donald Donald Trump's return to the Oval Office. Uh, Imagine what the reaction would be in Europe just for starts. Uh, and so we are warning the Democratic Party uh, to uh, to change the message and the substance that it's been offering the American people during the first year and a few months of uh, Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, and we we are saying that Mr. Biden was elected in 2020, quite narrowly, by the way, not only by rallying the base of the Democratic Party, but also reaching out to moderate and independent voters, uh, many of whom are white, but some of whom are Latino and Asian as well. Uh, That was the margin of victory in the key swing states that determined the election. Uh, We also point out in the piece that we are Now, in an unprecedented period of American politics, where almost every national election is very close uh, and where the influence of swing voters is decisive in determining the outcome. And so we, uh, you know, we do an analysis of what people in the center of the American political spectrum are looking for. And we urge the Democratic Party and President Biden to close the gap that has emerged between what that portion of the electorate says that it wants and what the Democrats are seen as offering them.
0: Uh, Bill, we've done a number of shows with Democrats of one kind another, particularly progressive Democrats. A couple of weeks ago, I did one with uh, Michael Kazin, has a new book out, um, mm-hmm. What It Took to Win. I think he would acknowledge that he's on the left of the Democratic Party. Many people like Kazin seem nostalgic for big government, nostalgic for LBJ, nostalgic for Roosevelt, nostalgic for Kennedy. Do you think that nostalgia for big government is a mistake?
1: Not necessarily. Uh, and the central issue before us, both within the Democratic Party and between the Democrats and the Republicans, isn't really focused on big government. Anymore. Uh, the, the Trump revolution inside the Republican Party is in part a rejection of the libertarian small government impulse in the in conservatism that, for example, shaped uh former Speaker Paul Ryan's approach to fiscal issues and much else besides. Uh, when Donald Trump announced uh, for president in 2015, in his famous down the escalator speech, he concluded that speech, or nearly concluded it, by saying, "We have to save Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid without cutting a penny. We have to do it. That's almost a direct quote from that speech." Uh, Mr. Trump represents a pivot towards a kind of a populist conservatism that is not at all averse to big. Government and so I don't think, as I said, the issue between the parties or within the party has to do so much with big government as it has to do with the party's perceived stand on cultural issues.
0: Right, and that's what your your piece focuses on. Lots of headlines as a result of the piece. Jeff Greenfield talking about the Democrats losing the culture war. Democrats are losing the culture war. Also, um, Matt Lewis suggests, having read your piece, and you, Ron Brownstein, who's been on this show several times, one of America's most respected political analysts, reports uh, in the Atlantic that the Democrats are losing the culture wars. What are the culture wars, Bill, and why why are the Democrats losing?
1: Why are Democrats losing? Uh The answer is that they have gotten caught on the wrong side of a number of issues that the American people care about. Uh, I think this problem really crystallized in in 2020, when Democrats started talking about defunding the police as violent crime rates were rising, when they started talking about abolishing ICE uh, as uh, as immigration, from south of, our, south of our border was uh, was rising uh, it hadn't yet peaked <laughs> but it was it was rising sharply and immigration was a very controversial issue uh between the parties and within the democratic party uh it got worse in 2021 uh when the schools issue came to the fore and democrats were blamed not only for keeping schools closed, but when they reopened of offering a form of instruction that many, many Americans in the middle of the political spectrum did not like. That's when the whole issue of critical race theory, a very abstruse academic doctrine became part of the public discourse. And, and Democrats, uh, Democrats who took what I will call the woke side of those issues, ended up going down to defeat in numerous elections in the fall of twenty twenty one. Well
0: do you believe these terms? Um I mean you're using woke as if it's a, a credible term. Some people, particularly progressives, believe it's a simply a, a disguised word used by racists to suggest that anyone who cares about any of these issues is against whites.
1: Well Are, that's that I I I challenge uh I really I really challenge that that position uh there is a difference these days between being a liberal and being a progressive uh and that is that is one of the key issues within the democratic party uh you can be you can be opposed to many things that progressives in the party stand for without being a racist Uh, that that used to be called, and in my book still is called, liberalism. And it is not conservatism, let alone racism. And I will def- I will defend it at home and abroad as staunchly as I can.
0: Bill, you, you, you talked about Pete Weiner uh, uh, in an admirable way, suggesting he's a conservative with a soul. I strongly agree with that. There are some people on the left, though, who who might suggest that centrist Democrats, don't have a soul. Um, can one be a liberal in a centrist sense and and retain one soul in in American politics today? Uh,
1: the answer to that question had better be yes. You know because that is that is the core, uh, that is the core of the American creed, uh, going all the way back to the Declaration of Independence, uh, and rooted in, not only in our constitutional system, but especially in the Bill of Rights. Uh, and I, I do not believe uh, that the individual freedoms guaranteed in the Bill of Rights and protected by our constitutional institutions are without purpose, without justification, or without soul. Uh, being a liberal is not being a trimmer. It's not splitting the difference. It's standing for a creed, which although not perfect, perfect is the best way forward for the United States and always has been at our most difficult moments. Uh, When Martin Luther King marched on Washington, uh, the promissory note that he demanded the redemption of uh, was the promise of the American creed of liberalism. It was not a call for a cultural revolution. He called upon us to be true to our founding creed. And every time we've moved forward as a country, country, it is because we have once again been reminded of these ancient truths and we have heeded their call. Uh, And if that's soullessness, then I don't know what soul requires.
0: But is there room in the Democratic Party for somebody like Bernie Sanders who isn't supposedly even a Democrat or even AOC. Is it a big enough tent for progressives and liberals to coexist?
1: Well, uh, AOC remarked, I believe accurately, uh, a few months ago, that if she were if she were in Europe, that she and Joe Biden would not be in the same political parties. That's absolutely correct. Uh, but the United States, for better or for worse, has the minimum number of political parties that a constitutional democracy requires. That is our fate for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Third parties in the United States emerge, and then one of two things happens. Uh, They either displace one of the two existing parties, as the Republicans did the Whigs in the late 1840s and mid-1850s, or they influence a major party and then die. Uh, as the populists did, as the progressives did in the late 19th and early t- early 20th century. Uh, so perforce, both parties in the United States must be big tents. Uh, and many, many of the debates that go on between parties in multi-party parliamentary systems occur within each of the major political parties in the United States. Uh, And so the answer had better be yes, Uh, and uh, if not, we will see a repetition of what happened in 2016 when a 21st century peak of 6% of the electorate decided to support neither of the two major political parties, and that was one of the direct causes of Donald Trump's narrow victory in 2016.
0: Bill, you had an interesting video uh, I was watching earlier today about how we can increase voter participation. It's on YouTube for anyone who wants to watch. How can Democrats make themselves more modern, more relevant without shifting into the woke crowd? How can they revitalize democracy?
1: That That is not an easy question. Uh, That's
0: why I but, asked but, but, but you kind of, but this is yeah. what you've been thinking about.
1: Uh, I mean the, revitalizing democracy is a multi-dimensional task. Uh, I do think that it begins uh, with the simple act of voting itself. Uh, I view it I view it as encouraging that such a high record high percentage of the electorate turned out to vote in 2020 and with and democrats, I think, have an opportunity to. uh, To try to institutionalize some of the technical uh, arrangements that made it possible for. Uh, for so many people to vote so freely in 2020, despite the pandemic. And so step number one, and I think this is a good fight to have, is the fight for voting rights.
0: Right. We had um, Michael Waldman on the show from the Brennan Center. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Yes. Talking about this. So you think the fight to vote is, a, is not only just, but a, a smart electoral strategy.
1: I'm sorry, Andrew, you broke up as you were asking that question. Um,
0: I mentioned that we'd had um, Michael Waldman on the show from the Brennan Center, um, an organization very much committed to voting rights and and fighting some of the the Republican reforms on on elections. Um, You're suggesting that for the Democrats, this issue of voting rights is not only just, but it's smart political strategy.
1: Uh, I support many, though not all, of the Brennan Center's initiatives. Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, I think there's room for some reasonable distinctions here. Most Americans don't understand why, if you have to show your uh, a picture ID to you know to take a flight on an airplane, why it's unreasonable to be asked to be shown some to show some sort of identification uh, when when you're casting a vote. Uh, There are ways of dealing with that issue. But let me go on in response to your response to your question. Uh, I have argued for decades uh, that uh, that the country was neglecting civic education in public schools. I actually started a research center, which is still in existence, that attacked that issue frontally. We have made, I'm sorry to report very little progress in that direction, but perhaps what's going on now will be a wake up call. And I know that a number of organizations, some of them quite well funded, are resuming the fight for uh, meaningful civic education in public schools. The good news is that surveys, including one that I helped, helped conduct, Uh, have documented there's much more consensus about civic education and American history within the American public uh, that the extremes of the struggle would have you believe. Uh, And it's the choice is not between the 1619 project and the 1776 project, at least as far as most Americans are are concerned, there is overwhelming support. uh, For a form of teaching of civics and history uh, that tells the American story warts and all and the American people are not demanding a pretty a prettied up picture of the kind of country we are and have been uh, what they're asking for is, is a balanced approach. Uh, that most conservatives and most liberals can embrace. And I am convinced based on decades of studying American history curricula, that is per- that is perfectly possible. So that's step two. Here's step three. Uh, we need national leadership that regards, narrowing the gap between the political parties as a very important part of saving and revitalizing American democracy. Uh, And here, uh, I would would say that President Biden disappointed me during his first year in office. And let me explain. Uh, When he was a presidential candidate, he sent two messages, one to the country, the other to the party. The message that he sent to the country was that he would do his best to reunify uh, a very divided nation. The message that he sent to his political party was that he was not going to be a factional candidate. Uh, He was going to be a unifier of the Democratic Party and that he would try to govern from the center of the party. Here's the problem. You can either govern from the center of a party in a polarized system, or you can govern from the center of the country uh, and try to narrow uh, the polarized gap, but it's very hard to do both. And I think one one of the negative surprises that swing voters experienced in the first year of the Biden presidency was that he seemed to be doing much more of governing from the center of the Democratic Party and much less governing from the center of the country than they had been led to expect during the presidential campaign. And I would hope that Mr. Biden uh, would uh, would remember the kind of senator that he was uh, and tried to bring more of that back into his presidency in the second, third and fourth years. I know that if Michael Kazin uh, were here on this show, and he's a friend, by the way, uh, he would he would probably say, and many many other left leaning Democrats would say that I'm dreaming. That there is no space left in the center of the country for that kind of negotiation.
0: Is there any space, um, uh, Bill, for Biden to address the issues of race? We've had so many conversations about that, this, this issue that dominates so much of American culture, politics, life. Should Biden even talk about race in the next couple of years, or is that in itself going to result in him losing
1: votes? Uh, I think that he should act on issues that matter uh, for that problem. And whether the right way to do it, to do that is to talk directly about race, or or to do it in a more encompassing framework is a is a tactical question. I noted with interest that in his State of the Union address, uh, he took his firmest stance ever on the question of defunding the police, which of course is a racially charged issue. Uh, and, and said flatly, we shouldn't defund them, we should fund them. Uh, and that is the view, by the way, of most African Americans. They don't want fewer police, they want better police. And I think that is an entirely fair demand. And so uh, I think the president, for example, uh, should try to revitalize the bipartisan uh, talks Uh, on policing reform that broke down last summer. Uh, The White House had minimal involvement in that issue, Uh, but if they were asking me for advice, I would say try to revitalize those conversations in year two of the Biden presidency.
0: We began with inflation and this potential return to the 1970s. Let's end on that note. Your Brookings piece suggests that uh inflation and you wrote this i guess before the ukraine war i'm not sure how this is going to impact certainly going to make it worse. why inflation is biden's biggest political problem do you think if he can at least counter inflation that can pretty much guarantee him re-election if he chooses to run again
1: not necessarily but if he doesn't i can guarantee him that he will suffer jimmy carter's fate uh so I would say it's a necessary but not sufficient condition.
0: Interesting from, as always, from uh, William Golston, the author of New Politics of Evasion that tells Democrats truths that perhaps, certainly people on the left of the Democratic Party don't wanna hear. Uh, Bill, you're talking to me from your home in Bethesda. Spotty internet, but you're not spotty. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to your new politics of evasion in March, 2022. What are you reading, (laughs) Bill, these
1: days? What am I reading these days? Well, I am as much interested in my foes as in my friends. Uh, And so I have been tracking in some detail the growth of the so-called national conservative movement and a political theorist, Uh, which is my trade, at least the one I was trained to perform, by the name of Yoram Yoram Hazoni, uh, who is the intellectual leader of that movement, I believe, is about to come out with a new book on restoring conservatism. I have an advanced copy of that. I'm reading it now, but I'm mentioning it because it will be out on March 17th. And so the entire country, or the interested portion thereof, can see what the national conservative movement is all about, uh, and what its strengths and weaknesses are.
0: Is it a chilling book or a reassuring one for someone like yourself, who wants to, um, who wants to restore democracy in America, which essentially means restoring the idea of pluralism to the Republican Party, it would seem.
1: Uh, it is not a book that I regard as terribly friendly to pluralism. Uh it you know, a, and in other in other writings, Mr. You know, Mr. Hazzoni has called for what amounts to an established religion uh in America, which, although he's an Orthodox Jew, believes should be some form of Christianity. Uh As a non Orthodox Jew, I have a very hard time (laughs) accepting that recommendation. Mm,
0: Fascinating. We'll have to get him on the show. Finally, William Golston, the author of many things, including The New Politics of Evasion. Uh, Bill Golston, who's in charge? Who runs the world these days in March
1: 2022? (laughs) If you'd asked me that question in 2012 or 2002 or 1992, I would have been able to answer very clearly the United States of America. Now I would say nobody runs the world. And that is the essence of the world in in which we now live. And and international relations theory and a whole lot of history going back to Thucydides suggests that if nobody runs the world, the results will not be pretty. Uh, Hegemony is better if the hegemon is not too bad.